Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast. I'm Paul Chapman. Today, I'm joined by Daryl Schofield. Daryl was most recently leading business development and M&A at Delic. Prior to that, he was SVP of commercial at Tesoro. And prior to that, had a, a long career with BP in various uh, executive roles within the trading sphere. Daryl, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks, Paul. I guess today we're going to talk about the future for refiners and, and integrated businesses. Before we talk about the impacts of COVID, I kind of wanted to go back to maybe the end of last year and just if you could orientate us as the, the marketplace in general and the markets, um, you know, obviously refiners have faced challenges of slowing demand for products, particularly around transportation and power, um, also growing capacity um, in Asia. Can you, I guess, start us off there with, you know, the state of the industry prior to a global pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. It's fascinating how long ago uh, nine months can feel. But just to give you some perspective, I had come into the Delico role with a long experience of, of North America and most powerfully over the last decade, so pretty much since the shale gale. And during that time, I'd, I'd worked with Tesoro Endeavor, with Greg Gopp in what was an aggregation of assets uh, disposed of by uh, the majors and super majors. And ultimately, that was the portfolio that Marathon bought. And that gave me a particular insight as to how the global refining capacity was mapping out. What had shifted by the end of 2019 was, I think, in, in many ways, illustrated by the rather poorly named at the time Oil and Money Conference in October 2019, if you can remember that, because it was renamed on the first day as Energy Intelligence, which was very apt. <laughs> um, and the whole focus of that conference, if you'll remember, was around energy transition. Um, and it was fascinating to hear Van Buren get up to Shell and Dudley as he was, you know, passing over the portfolio uh, for BP. Talk about the challenges of that. It was also fascinating to hear from uh, the investor community or those representing the sell side at least how out of favour uh, fossil fuels were, how difficult it was to sell them, the challenges of ESG, etc. And rather more licking their lips was the venture capital guys who were just simply waiting for those assets to be undervalued so that they would have the opportunity to, to reposition them. But coming into the beginning of 2020, the issues of capacity of new energies, renewables and uh, low carbon production, and the consolidation of the business for the big companies to move forward, for the super majors and majors to move forward, non-core assets to become available, put companies like Delic pretty much back in that uh, Tesoro endeavor mode. So seeing good opportunities, good assets uh, in niche positions to perform well. Uh, but with the overcapacity, uh, uh, being very mindful of not being caught in a merchant uh, refining position competing against the big engines on the Gulf Coast or being exposed to the ever more vigorous um, international competition that we were seeing out of the Middle East and out of the um, Far East and out of India. So a couple of competing things there. At the time, a reasonable confidence in continuing demand, a concern about the future move to clean energy, and recognition that um, there was some pretty big and powerful capacity being brought into the market, so knowing this is going to be a challenging market. It is a more challenged future. You've got that declining demand for transportation, you know, other products, you've got that push to decarbonization. Um, you do have this increased capacity coming on. You were looking at this from a strategic sense. What 
were the general strategies available to refine independence and integrated refiners you know at that time what what were they sort of the the general plan to 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 grow to win you know what were the options available it was a you know fascinating time for you'd seen refiners um t- take advantage of their uh certainly in north america for instance you'd seen the refiners take advantage of the available domestic crudes um depending on their position um, and the access to the global markets. So on the one hand, if they could differentiate their position by having advantage crude supplies out of the Barkan or ultimately out of the Permian, then that was a good thing. Um, if they could reduce their operating costs by essentially owning a lot of the, uh, the midstream between their crude supply and their product markets, then of course that became a good thing. It's not only on the way in which they could improve their margins, but the way in which their, their capital costs came to them. Um, and if they could actually give themselves some flexibility between being able to put product into a domestic market um, and also into an international market, that was a good thing too. Um, now, needs to say not all the assets can do all of these things. And it became it became very clear that it was a kind of stretch between the niche players and the the coastal big engines who were the international players. Um, but that sense of deepening your position in your own footprint and making sure that you could drive your costs down and, and maintain your margins by owning more and more of the value chain, I think was a consistent theme, certainly across North America, but you saw it in other parts of the world as well. If your system was geared towards the chemicals pet chems market, you could really focus into that. And then, as you say, as with everyone else, drive costs down through, you know, taking advantage of the new technologies that are out there, you know, talk a lot about digitization and so forth. So there was certainly options to reduce costs as well. I think there were, but you had to kind of pick your game. So one of the things we were doing in building out our strategy, a much smaller operation, and it was kind of the beginning of the Tesoro Endeavor journey. So the early aggregation. Um, was to work out, okay, who who was winning in transitioning and how were they transitioning? Now, you know, there's some classic leaders in the class. If you're talking about uh, straight energy transition, so a, mo- a direct move into renewables, and so we look at companies like Neste or Orsted, uh, quite different from each other, but ultimately they've changed their platforms dramatically. And both their capital and ultimately then their subsequent growth came from the renewable sector. Um, if it, it, people often forget that Neste is actually still a refining company. You know, it, it's actually, its refining contribution hasn't, in fact, reduced over the years. But what's absolutely clear is that his, its uh, contribution from renewables has been exponential. So there's one example. And you coming to North America, you kind of have a blended response from others. A fine company that we greatly admire, much, much larger than us, P66. You can break out their contribution. Yep, classic refining with looking at such things as renewable diesel, typically in partnership. I think those things didn't quite come through, but they were looking at them back then. But they looked very, very strongly at boosting their midstream, which they did very effectively and increased the contribution from that, and their CAMS business, which became a significant driver. So the two key growth elements in their business going forward were actually the midstream and chemicals. If you then look at others in that space, Valero would be an example, classic refiner, focused on improving its operations, very successful in that, and an early mover in ethanol. But the ethanol, you know, the, the blush came off the rose, but they also then moved very aggressively in renewable diesel. So they had a good instinct for 
diversifying out of where they were and transitioning to a, a potential greener, lower carbon future. So, but you'll notice in each of those examples, even in the Neste example, which was you know government supported as with Orsted, so they had that help. It's capital intensive. So for for others, the the journey into that new space is more challenging. You know, how do you make your bets? How can you be sure that the bets you're placing um, are actually going to come through? Uh, renewable diesel is a, is a is a great opportunity. Uh, the difficulty is by the as with many things in refining, it's inevitable in some ways that um, the capacity will overwhelm two things: is the provision of the feedstocks needed to make the diesel, and ultimately the amount of product that um, actually the market can consume because of infrastructure. That's what we do in refining. Um, so. Being a first mover in these markets is okay. Being a second mover is not bad, but being late to the party can be disastrous. So I think what you found at the time was a, a recognition that as long as demand remains stable and as long as you're making a series of bets, there were opportunities to transition. But before COVID, Paul, remember, we thought we had time. Mm. To go back to the McKinsey studies at that time, we were talking about a pretty steady increase in fossil fuels, in Italy with a big nat gas piece, out to 2030, with the decline in, in transportation, specifically in uh, um, automotive requirement for fossil fuels, really uh, coming 25 and afterwards, but being a small decline. So we thought we had time to continue making money out of our business, we ran it well, and to transition more gently into new fuels. Yeah, more of a runway and capital markets out there that were supportive Absolutely. and get you there. So so that brings us nicely up to sometime mid-March when, you know, I'm sure we were both, uh, you know, scrambling to get on planes back home before the borders shut and all the rest of it. So, so COVID-19 strikes, you know, how has that picture changed? Oh, hasn't it just? Um, and I, actually, I was sitting in the end of February, beginning of just the first week in March as well. Um, in front of counterparts who I won't name, but none of the names would surprise you, declaring why we had carefully built up our war chest and why we were strategically extremely interested in their assets to acquire. And uh, even at that point, because we had recognized that essentially the transition would require the, the majors and super majors to finally make decisions about non-core smaller assets, which would be beneficial to us. And we thought the shakeout would just accelerate their need. Of course, we were all massively underestimating exactly how dramatic this, the impact would be. And you weren't so much catching a falling knife as catching a falling axe at this point. So we be, be, everybody began to think, well, yeah, this isn't just a case of deferring M&A activity. We're just absolutely uncertain yeah, how it will come back. So our contemplation at that point was, you know, First of all, okay, yeah, we, we just have to be even more fussy about the assets we look at and we even and more imaginative about how we acquire them. And ultimately that might lead to partnerships and acquisitions, different kinds of funding arrangements, different kinds of shared projects. To the point that everybody's looking at each other and thinking, as you know, we're talking about the survival of our companies right now. So if you had a war chest for acquisition, that now becomes a safety chest, as it were, to save the company. What was interesting at that point, and it's a pivotal point, and I think this probably brings us into the next part of the, competition, uh, the conversation, is cost to serve, maintaining a competitive advantage through efficiency was always critical. And um, 
it had been a concern in, in pre-COVID as to how do we make these investments without losing our efficiency and without losing our competitive um, pricing. Uh, in many of the surveys that came up before COVID-19, it was very clear people want a greener planet, but they want affordable product. There are many studies that have been reflecting that. So we knew we had to do the new, but we had to do it at the right price. Post-COVID, with what you describe as less capital, an accelerated requirement for uh, uh, for renewables and for lower carbon um, from the general public and from the governments who are now supporting industries and markets. Um, but this acute awareness that you know the choices you make have to continue to compete at price. The conversation around digital transformation and analytics shifted, accelerated dramatically. And I think that becomes an interesting part of post-COVID life is, is that culture, is that operational model and cultural shift going to be the key for those companies that succeed in this next phase? Okay, so you've got COVID comes along. You've you've you know we had that kind of green skies over Delhi phenomenon that we talk about. You know mm. people have seen the you know viscerally seen the impact of of uh, fossil fuels and how quickly mm. their environment can change without using them. But significantly, you've had this dramatic exit of capital. You know um, from the energy space. You know you've seen huge stock declines. You've you know there's been here in the US the uh, boiling, well, upcoming controversy. I imagine about you know the shale and and the, the whether that was actually ever a decent investment, so to speak. So you, you've got those really two twin forces that you know, the refiners are right there in the middle of. And I, I guess what you're saying to understand it or to unpack it is that this probably drives the need for a better understanding of markets, better, I guess, trading. Really, is, is that is that your point? I think it's. It's actually even a challenge to traders. I, I think it's a much overused term, and I think we all struggle to understand exactly what it means. But value chain optimization, you know, mm. we, we've, we've stolen language perhaps from other industries, and, and perhaps as, as traders, and you know that to be my background, we found that way of expressing to certain larger companies, and in, in our case, it was back in BP back in the day, is how the connectedness of assets and of markets to assets um, essentially enables you to um, to take the best out of your competitive position. Those things held true, but there was still quite a cultural difference in the application of technologies, including digital technologies, even within the, within the super majors. I mean, there's no doubt technology was powerfully taken on by um, deep sea exploration for reservoir um, uh, assessments and analysis, and that same kind of Upstream approach came part of the manufacturing advantage, and I certainly experienced this with Talisman in Canada in the shell fields. You know, the, the ability to gain product, uh, productivity every year. Nonetheless, felt that that kind of digital approach, which seemed to be prevalent in the upstream, never quite shifted downstream of those businesses, unless, of course, you had trading businesses which had borrowed, I think, from the financial markets where they were constantly willing to disrupt the model around in favor of data and analytics-driven uh, trading decision-making. But again, these were pockets within these larger companies. I think what's changed now is you've seen, uh, and you and I have talked about it, the, the application, I suppose in very simple terms, Internet of Things, so IoT, 
bringing the, the edge close to the center. So you have sensors in your refineries checking for plant uptime, also for, for pipeline deterioration, um, et cetera. You, you are able to have much more, a stronger digital platform for the management of turnarounds. This is extraordinarily important in terms of managing the capital budgets, but hugely important in obviously in terms of understanding how your portfolio is up or down during which market circumstances. But the difference being now is, and you're you're seeing some of the the most powerfully thoughtful of our uh, companies in our industry thinking, well, that's still interesting, but it's not at the center of our decision making. In other words, all the data that flows to us from the market, all the data that flows to us from our transportation of our molecules, and all the data that flows to us from our acid activity still don't appear in one place with full transparency that enable us to flex them all coherently and to do it in a very responsive way. And I think that is both a technical challenge but I actually think it's more of a cultural challenge, but it will be those companies that succeed in both those spaces that will be the ones who survive and profit in the next in the next decade. Mm, that value chain optimization, it's, it's sounds simple, but you know, I guess you and I both know like, it's been really difficult to actually implement. And I don't know if anyone's done it perfectly. I don't think so. Do see these um, national companies around the world, um, you know, building out, now supply chain and optimization businesses is technology going to sort of unlock some of those barriers that have well first off what what have what do you think has been the barrier to building these you know integrated value chain optimization platforms within refiners within integrated majors right that's a great question i thought about it before this conversation how could i say it not too controversial way, but <laughs> um, but not to offend good friends and colleagues still out there. But um, so this is one person's view, and you know, I, I, I'm Wall Street to super major on the energy side. So I'm I look at it from a disruptor's point of view, I suppose, because I've been fortunate enough to see that happen again and again. And this is my sense. It's why I talk about culture. I've, I've had the great fortune over the last 20 plus years post Wall Street to be working with some of the best engineering talent I've ever come across. And that engineering talent goes beyond big engineering. It gets into the, as we've just been describing, reservoir engineering, drilling engineering, et cetera. However, the nature of our industry has been big projects, you know, so it's capital intensive, you know, um, and we tend to look for single platform solutions and we tend to have been. Therefore, we spend huge sums in building, and even with the platforms that we go to major partners for, we kind of want to do it our way. Um, and so we, we we have not been nimble in the way in which we've thought about uh, technology, and have been unwilling really to let an innovative, uh, as it were, open system culture develop, where you just have lots of extremely talented people who are willing to use and adapt the tools available to them to enable them to deliver the operating model um, or the, the profitability or the commercial opportunities as they like. Okay. So, so as I understand it, that's fascinating. So what you're saying is essentially that, you know, as this current state of technology, there's so much more capacity to capture data, whether that's from the edge, from, from your customers, from your suppliers, from the market itself, I guess, but also from 
your physical operations um that if you could capture all of that then 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 that would really empower the value chain optimization group your marketing and trading group um as well as other parts of the business which you haven't historically been able to do but that's a really you know it, it sounds wonderful underpinning your business by all that data and you're suggesting that i guess one of the blocks there has been that it's always been closed systems um how do you overcome that do, you, do we do you, organizations need to to build or buy or what what sort of can you um i guess orientate us a bit more so what you mean there i think you see it's uh it, it's the question of our time, really, for our industry. I think we're seeing, and there are good examples of this, where the systems have opened up. We, we, we talked anecdotally about when Bloomberg was a closed system and you couldn't even get an Excel, Excel spreadsheet download from it a while ago. Um, when SAP accounting led, there was no such thing as SAP having an open environment or going out and buying applications or app developers that would have trading functionality. If you even go further afield now, it's still interesting to note Aspen Tech, long been in the industry, building a collaborative platform to enable it to use its language, value chain optimization as a core competency. To, to my view of that, excellent company, excellent knowledge, still not quite there, but, but the point is they're using the language. Um, past tools that we've used, Genscape, Woodmac, now the same company owned by somebody that's an investor, but predominantly looking at publishing of data. Again, all good things. But then, of course, the tools themselves, the, the, the availability of collaborative tools and open systems and technologies, frankly, just within the Microsoft suite, you find more than you need. But again, this is still missing the point because the intellectual capital around value chain optimization lies at the heart of the businesses in our industry. A good refiner knows every aspect of the business that creates value, that leaks value, that ultimately drives costs where the money is spent. What they don't typically do is build a centralized unit which has full sight of all the relevant data and analytics that flow along that value chain and inform them of how that value chain is performing. The technology is there already. The sense of value chain and where the value is created and lost is there already. The integration of the technology with that thinking and that decision-making and the building out of robust processes that bring them together is still in early development. And most of it hinges on culture. And the biggest challenge for our industry is we're, we're big on big solutions we like. Big platforms, capital intensive, rather rigid, rather structured, rather siloed. Would be a, a major investment in some ways. Certainly, a time, cultural change, bringing in very different people, very different skill sets into their organisations that they they haven't historically housed. I think this is is right, but I think it's also helpful. Um, so let me you know, put it more positively. I, I actually think it's what um, will interest and infuse the the really gifted generate talent that's coming through uh, generations younger than ourselves who are looking for who are looking for the a pragmatic response to that energy transition so I, you know i i do understand that people are concerned about the level of change and challenge um and i also understand absolutely understand that this has to be done profitably um but we have some 
I think it's fair to say we have an existential threat to our industry. And, you know, amongst that is we have to make it attractive to the people who, who want to work in it. And the great thing is these people arrive with the skills and culture that we want anyway. They're already open to the technology um, and the application of that technology and the an appetite for change that, that we need. Uh, the, the, the challenge for the leadership of our industry is to have the confidence to give them the space to make that change. I don't mm -hmm. frankly feel that we have the choice. You know, I think that talent will out and somebody will give them the space and you'll see the, the success of it. But I'm actually very hopeful that those, most of the tools for what we need are already there. Um, it's the ability to combine that within a company that is for whom you know, that collaborative digital approach is is not culturally what they used to. Um, but I think it's been done before and it's been done in other places and, and it's been done in other industries. So uh, I'm hopeful we can do it in our industry too. And I'm, I'm actually confident we can do it in Will there be casualties? Mm. Maybe that's your next question. I think undoubtedly there will be. You're going to have to see consolidation. You're already seeing assets that either don't fit the niche or can't compete um, being shuttered. You're going to see more of that. Um, and ultimately, you are dealing in an environment um, where you're seeing lower demand. So if you can't shift the products that people want and provide them at a price which is competitive, ultimately, you know, your opportunity will will reduce and then ultimately disappear. I guess that's the essence of it, right? If you getting closer to the edge, you're going to understand more about the products that your customers want around the world. And by capturing the advantages of digitization, um, you know, you're going to lower the cost to be able to get those products to market. Um, and it, that, that is really that, that value chain optimization. I've got one final question that's probably a bit unfair, but... <laughs> That you know, so you you mentioned the trading houses as being absolutely right have been at the very forefront, I think, of capturing innovation, you know, hedge funds too, and and, and you know, using that to drive trading profits. They've also um, a few of them have ventured more recently into acquiring refineries, albeit mm -hmm. in in Europe, I think you know, which has probably suffered the most from a market structure. Do you see trading houses getting further into the industry or are these still very big beasts for a trading house to actually manage and operate? I, I, I wish I could put names to this, but it would be unfair to the people. But I, I've always got amusing stories uh, around friends and who've been part of the, in trading houses that have acquired these assets. And it's always interesting, the culture shock, if they, especially if they've been pure traders, to come to terms with what it is to actually have the responsibility for a refinery and how uh, how challenging that is, or even for a retail set. You know, generally, traders are more happy with certainly in these days with the short um, than with the, with the complex and capital-intensive long. But uh, culturally, it's, it's generally challenging. Um, I think they're less sensitive to the ESG overlay. That doesn't mean they're insensitive to it, and it doesn't mean they won't pay attention. Um, I think they're very interested in new markets. I think what you're therefore likely to see is if they're going to buy the refinery, it's either because they think it's got a particular niche position or a particular trading opportunity that is uh, that is valuable in itself and will last for a while. But 
they don't by nature want to pay top price. So in other words, if it is fairly clear to everybody that's what it's worth, then it's less attractive to a trader. But the responsibility of buying a, a, a poorly performing asset with all the environmental and other issues that come with it is also unattractive. I think the niche for a trading company is to be able to get into markets where the assets allow you a position to move into those um, renewable uh, product markets. So where you have an opportunity in two ways that because of your understanding of a broad array of the energy commodity market from, from the classic oil and oil products to all the way through to, to power and to renewable power, you should have an opportunity to look at lower carbon footprint for production. And if you can get that asset, then with a low carbon footprint to be producing renewable products or renewable diesel into a market which is supported by its government, in other words, that there are good credits or subsidies against that, you're getting supported on both sides of the equation, right? So you, you have support from manufacturing, you're lowering your footprint, you're you are, you've extended the array of things you can trade and you're selling into a, a premium product which for which there's a, a safer demand and a more generous margin. And I think we've seen examples of that. So even in possibly especially in Europe, where there's a very supportive uh, regime for, um, for renewable products, being able to repurpose a classic refinery, keep people employed, keep the assets safe, but produce cleaner products in a cleaner way. That, that is, it's not just about benevolence, that is a profitable business and that will remain attractive um, to refiners, but I think, sorry, to traders, but I think they're gonna be highly selective. What you say makes sense. It also, yeah, as you say, it complements the other pushes most of the trading house, well, in fact, I think all of them are doing into power, um, mm. you know, as they also naturally follow this energy transition, which I think, you highlighted for us, you know, COVID has absolutely accelerated. And the the big question everyone now just has to grapple with is is kind of time, you know, how long do these organizations have, wh whatever they are, to prepare themselves for that transition, and hopefully, um, be a significant part of it. Good news for traders, right, Paul, I mean, it is in terms of time is during this time of disruption, and clearly, we've seen it in the first half of the year, which has been quite extraordinary. But we're likely to see dislocation level volatility continue. You know, um, it won't continue in an unbroken stream, but there's going to be enough opportunity for traders to have good years, only needing one or two good quarters to make those years. And I think that's likely to be the case for the next couple of years. Now, what you do with those good years, I think, is going to be the critical piece for the long term in, in any and all of the commodities. The challenge on low carbon production is as relevant for a, you know, a copper miner as it is, frankly, for a, you know, a crude producer or for a refinery. Um, so I think that's, that's a common theme. But actually getting products that move in, so are, are cleaner in themselves, so renewable diesel an example, or biofuels of some, depending on the regime you work in, I think there are tremendous opportunities there as well. So I think tra traders have a good opportunity. And if those assets, we've seen the big players, they, they were moving on their portfolios on their non-core assets prior to COVID-19. They have not changed their view. And I think, frankly, there are more people out there 
that are, are likely to have be wanting to move non-core assets as well. So I think the opportunities to buy at value uh, uh, will align with the with the opportunities to reposition those assets in the future. And I think traders or venture capitalists that have good trading links will take great advantage of that. And yeah, you know, I guess for for the individuals themselves, you know, there's there's opportunities both at the trading houses, but also, and we are definitely seeing this, you know, at refiners, at integrated majors, as organisations are seeing, um, you know, kind of, frankly, what we saw in the coal industry almost a, a decade ago in the US, which was those organisations that had robust marketing and optimization platforms mm-hmm. fared better than those that didn't. Um, you know, and I think that's Absolutely. what we we are going to see that kind of, if not a renaissance, um, you know, organizations look to their, in quotes, trading platforms, you know, to be, um, yeah, I think, as you pointed out, vital to the, that transition as it happens and individuals who have those skill sets, especially individuals who are technology orientated, who are used to working with really integrating systems are going to be in, in, in high demand. It's really striking. I think you put it really well. So my most recent experience is intriguing for me. Small companies, when they do M&A, as you know, have to reach out to all the SMEs, you know, uh, subject matter experts across the company. They don't have standing teams of M&A specialists. This isn't BP or Shell. And so the way you do it is you, you get your Microsoft Teams, you set up 12 work streams, and you have this highly collaborative online environment so you can tap into your unit engineering expert in one refinery and you can tap into your contract specialist or legal paralegal in one, in one head office. Uh, as soon as COVID-19 hit, um, fortuitously, because we'd set this up for the M&A deals we're in, we just transported. The culture was ready uh, and was stopped all the petty arguments about this platform over that platform. I like it this way. I like it that way. This security, that security. And we adopted. Try, and Okay. This is a small company of 4,000 people. But that event enabled us to get through um, the cultural reservation, which I have to say <laughs> is certainly generational specific, um, and adopt, and the level of adoption came quickly. But the key point in this is I was already, we were all really being exposed to extraordinarily innovative, digitally minded young engineers. Uh, who were out in the assets or young pipeline engineers or and, and many others who, as you say, were brought up in these technologies who really didn't think it was a big deal, um, but actually thought their biggest challenge was, could they explain it sufficiently well to senior management that senior management could get comfortable about how appropriate this was to transform the business? So uh, I'm, I'm very bullish uh, that that talent is out there um, and that talent is highly collaborative and very adept to the technology is really where the leadership can create the environment in which they'll succeed. And I guess, you know, the results will probably be quite stark in a few years time as to which leaders embrace, you know, these opportunities um, and which didn't. I see, I think sitting where you're sitting, I think that's a fascinating question. To, I mean, it's something I'm sure you've done, I've done many times, is when you're having that career coaching session with a, with a current leader who you know is going to be a senior leader of the future, and you say, okay, five years forward, looking back, what would, how would you want to describe um, your contribution, the development of this business, the opportunity? And I, I think that's exactly where we sit now. 
five years forward looking back, if we have not taken advantage of the opportunity that is right in front of us right now, it will have been a single, singular failure of some extraordinary proportions for our industry. Because right now, it's not just a smoking platform, the thing's a little on fire. Um, the incentive to change is dramatic. And you know, the opportunity to change was equally dramatic. So it leaves me mainly optimistic, but it is, as with, as with all things, it is predominantly about leadership and culture. I think the technology is already there. Fascinating, and it's yeah, quite um, quite stirring. You know, obviously an existential threat out there to the to the industry, and um, you know, to to have the at least a, a one path to success highlighted for challenge to implement it is is not lost. But um, very much appreciate your insight, Daryl. Really enjoy. Thank you for letting me talk about my favourite child. <laughs> not at all well i i look forward to uh well you know we could check back in um in a, in a couple of years and, and see where we got to and uh hopefully you and i will be able to meet uh before too long once uh once travel uh gets less restricted and uh you know meet at the sustainable energy conference formerly known as the oil and money conference <laughs> <laughs> sometime this year absolutely absolutely well I, i'm very excited as you know i'm 14 15 hours away from being released from my london quarantine after coming back in the states so yes i can't wait best of luck and uh, thanks again for your time cheers paul thank you for listening to the hc insider podcast to find out more about hc go to hcinsider.global where there's more news and content focused on the commodities markets